Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Adam Gilmore, who's the co-founder and chief executive of Gilmore Space. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Walter. So before you got uh, into space technology and rockets, um, you were one of us. You were in the financial and banking industry um, as a managing director with Citigroup. Can you tell me a little bit about your career at that time? Sure. I was. Uh, I started in uh, Citibank in um, in Sydney as a foreign exchange trader, and in that in those days, um, Citibank was the number one foreign exchange bank in the world. It still is to this time, but uh, it was a massive industry back then. Uh, and then I moved up to Singapore two years after that, and was trading again foreign exchange in in the Singapore dealing room. And then I diversified out into currency derivatives, um, probably five years into my career. And I did derivatives probably for the next 15 years in one form or another. I went into interest rate derivatives and um, you know all the other commodity derivatives, et cetera. Uh, and then for the last eight years I was there, I ended up running the sales business uh, with for corporate clients in financial markets for Asia Pacific. So we dealt with customers that were from, you know, three or four persons, you know, small, medium enterprises, all the way up to the biggest multinationals. Um, and I think what kind of attracted me to leave the bank and start my own company was we started doing a lot of work with small to medium and medium MME uh, companies. And I literally saw, you know, people start companies with very small groups of people and then grow through time and then become like, you know, billion-dollar companies with with massive revenue, and I thought, you know, that that's not a bad way to go. If you're going to put your, your heart and soul into a project for ten years, you should want to get some payout like that at the end of it. And then I've always been a space fan, so I just thought, you know, naturally, let me have a look at space and see if there is an opportunity. And I, I looked at space for probably probably seven or eight years before I figured out there was an opportunity and there was something I you know, could pursue and do and, um, and, and hopefully make money out of. And that's, that's why I started doing rockets and that's when I left the bank. So, so how do you get involved in rockets? I mean, I assume it's not something you just do in your back garden. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a tricky thing to say where do you start, right? So, you know, where do you start? You start small. And you start with small rocket engines and small rockets. 
And if you do that, that doesn't scare a lot of people, you know. So if you're trying to do this for the first time in Australia, um, you know, people people fly hobby rockets here all the time. You know, so people are used to small things. So when we were doing the initial testing of our of our rocket engines, you know, they weren't at a size that would scare a lot of people. So, you know, we did one rocket engine test in the backyard of, of one of my properties. Uh, we ended up doing more rocket engine tests in my parents' farm. Um, you know, and then as they got bigger and bigger, we started looking for a, um, a you know, a, a longer-term strategy. And now we test our rocket engines in a quarry, which is in the middle of nowhere, um, and, you know, with all the safety systems and everything in place. So, you know, our technology and our complexity and our risk went up as we got better at managing it. Um, and then in terms of, you know, you've got to employ a whole lot of rocket engineers and there's not a lot in Australia. So, again, started with a very small group of people and then tried to hire people in from overseas. And, um, and then you get to a critical mass where, you know, you've got people in the company five, six years with good experience that are teaching all the graduates that come in. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're doing rockets, you know, you, you can get the, you could get the very detailed plan, engineering design plan from a competitor and it still wouldn't mean that you could do the rocket easily and launch it easily. You have to go through the process of building, testing, assembling. You know, a lot of the complexity is just putting the pieces together and making sure they fit together and work together. And that is experience you build through time. And that's how you learn. So there's sort of high barriers uh, to entry in this, uh, in this industry. Yes. I, uh, when I started out as a, as a financial journalist many, 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 many years ago, I, I followed a couple of companies on the Dutch stock market, Euronext stock market. And one of my first companies was New Sky Satellite, which was a company that shot satellites into, into space. Is that sort of what your company does? Can you tell us a little bit about what is actually the industry of rockets? Yeah, so we're, we're like the, the, um, the Federal Express of space. So, you know, we, we take payloads of customers, which is generally satellites, and we give them a ride to space. So we don't actually sell our rockets to anybody. We just sell a ride on our rocket. And, you know, the complexity of that is space is a big, big thing. And it's not like you go to space, you go to one place. You know, there's multiple altitudes, multiple inclinations, um, you know, and in each altitude there's, there's different risks associated with it. So it's quite a complicated uh, journey to take a customer because you've got to make sure their satellite fits in your rocket, can take all the forces the rocket is going to have as, a, as it goes to space, and then you can deliver it to where it wants to go. And a lot of customers are getting trickier and trickier orbits that they want to take the satellites into. And that leads very well into a small launch vehicle because small launch vehicles are nimble. They can go to many different places in space with a single satellite or just a couple of satellites. They don't have to take up 60 satellites at a time like the big rockets do. Right. And so is it mainly satellites or are there also other things that are shot into space? Well, we're, I mean, we've got a small launch vehicle, so we're taking satellites now, but we are going to work on a bigger launch vehicle that will be able to take cargo to space stations and eventually we want to take people up into space as well. So, you know, I think, you know, 20, 10, 20 years from now, there will be a bigger market to take cargo up into space, not only to low Earth orbit, but, you know, to lunar orbits and even delivering to the moon. Yeah. 
But you're planning on taking people into space as well? We definitely are. We started the company to take people into space, and it's it's definitely on our timeline. Uh, are you going the way of Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I fully intend to go to space on one of my vehicles. That's great. And, I, you know, I want to go more the way of Elon Musk because, you know, if I get a little bit complicated here, yeah. but Bezos and um, Branson are doing suborbital flights which is still great, but you just go up and come straight back down again. I want to go on an orbit and circle the Earth and be in space for a couple of days and, you know, really experience it. That'll be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. So one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, because we, we mainly cater for the um, asset owner superannuation industry in Australia and New Zealand, is that there's actually a couple of uh, superannuation funds that are, are backing your company. Um I think uh, you put out the release in, in June that um, you raised 61 million in a Series C uh, round of funding, which included uh, a number of funds, uh, including Hesta, Hospas, and Yes Super. Why do you think that they are interested in, in, in your industry? And what is sort of, where do you see this industry go? What's the future of it? I think, I think it's a couple of things. I think. What I'm happy about is the super funds are divvying up a little bit of their money to put on, you know, riskier uh, projects that that have much higher yields. You know, that's kind of 101 of of managing big asset pools. You have some in low risk, some in medium risk, some in high risk. And I'm really happy to see they've gone to what many might say is the highest risk, you know, venture. But even in venture, they haven't like, they're not really going into like seed or series A or even B. You know, so they're waiting for companies to prove their track record before they come in. And they're coming in really at what you'd call the growth stage of, of, of a company, which is probably the right thing for them to do in terms of risk management. Uh, I think I don't think they have a, uh, a view necessarily they want to get into space. I think they just look at companies on their merits, see what the opportunity is. Yeah. I also think for Australian uh, super funds, there is an element of nation building. You know, there's a cultural aspect that they have so much money that they have to be um, diligent with that money beyond financial. They have to have a social impact. And I think super fund managers understand this and they accept it and they want to do something about it. So I think, you know, when you are bringing a a new capability to the country. We've never had access to space in Australia before. You know, it's a fantastic nation-building capability. I think they, that resonates with them to say, you know, good company, good revenue prospects, but this is providing a capability Australia's never had before. Yeah. Um, and I think that was that was one of the reasons why, you know, we got some good interest from super funds. Yeah, and, and you're based in Queensland, and I saw that you recently got approval to, to build your own launch site at uh, Abbott Point. But what are sort of the advantages and, and disadvantages of being a local Australian uh, space company? I, there's more disadvantages than advantages. I think that the, the disadvantages is mainly the, the risk appetite of our government is significantly less than a lot of other governments around the world. Very easy to say the Americans always do it differently, but a lot of things the Americans do work really, really well, and they definitely take a lot more risk on space and defence. Yeah. Um, and and so that it's you know you kind of I look at my competitors overseas and at the same level that we are in, they're getting fifty million dollar launch contracts with the Air Force in America, 
before they've even gone to space. Right. You know, it, that this makes it a lot harder for me to compete against them. Um, you know, I think, you know, some of the benefits is it's a great place to attract talent. So we attract talent from all over the world and they very much want to come to Australia. As we've been growing our headcount, the other interesting thing we found is, uh, you know, we're going out interviewing, you know, mid, mid-career people or even later stage career people. And they basically have been out and about in the world doing fantastic uh, experience jobs. And then for social reasons, they decide to come and move to Australia and then you can you can snavel them up and get them to come and work for you, um, where you might have struggled if you were in the US or in Europe because they would have already been working for a space company already. So can you give us a bit of a sense of how large is this uh, space cargo market and what are sort of future developments? Yeah, so um, we estimate that the um, the market for launching small satellites into space will grow to five billion dollars by. 2025 and that that's based on analysis that we've done about how many of these broadband satellites need to be replaced in any given year Um, and you know we showed that uh, material to all our investors and you know we stress tested it etc and I think they all recognized that that was a clear possibility Deutsche Bank came out last week with some numbers to say that the um the market that we're going for is going to grow to eight billion dollars of annual revenue globally by 2030. Um, so that kind of is another validation, totally independent of us, about what the market would be. And they're looking at the same things we are: how many satellites have to be launched, how many have to be replaced, etc. So is it mainly uh, broadband-based satellites that are going up in the air? It's mainly uh, probably 90% of all the satellites that will be launched in the next five years are for broadband uh, communication. It's it's just such a sweet spot for space. It's such a high revenue uh, opportunity. I mean, you're basically directly competing with terrestrial telcos that are charging you an arm and a leg to you know to connect up to towers. So it's it's a real easy swap in, swap out. Um, of technology that space can get access to. So, you know, that's where a lot of the interest is in the, in the next five, 10 years. Yeah. So has your company been affected by, you know, the current pandemic that's going on? Are people putting less satellites in the air? Or? No, this, the space market's still been going very strongly, but what you're seeing is supply chain issues. So, um, especially in Australia, we have a decent supply chain in Australia. And when, when the states go into lockdown, that affects a lot of our suppliers. You know, for, for a period of time, they just don't go to the factory and make our stuff. So that's impacting us right now. The other big impact has been uh, global freight has dr- dropped dramatically, um, especially air freight. You know, so people never understood. I knew it as a banker because I dealt with the aviation industry, how much of the revenue of a traditional airliner comes from freight, Mm. you know? So they basically, you know, the flights have just dramatically dropped. So the cargo space in these flights has obviously dropped. So we've, we've seen air, air freight prices probably go up five or six times higher than where they were before. And we do air freight a lot of stuff from overseas down. Uh, So that's been a problem. And then the other problem we're seeing right now is there's a 
a chip shortage globally. Uh, I'm not even sure exactly why and what's going on, but um, we're hearing that the demand for chips is huge. The supply is constrained. And a lot of our supply chain is basically saying we don't have we don't have the supply. Yeah. So that's a problem. Yeah. So how do you build a rocket? I mean, do you get all the parts from uh, uh, overseas, from from factories, and then you put it together here in Australia, or how does it work? Because I understand that some parts you actually do 3D printing and. You've experimented even a bit with printing 3D fuel. Yeah. How, how does how do you build a rocket? So we do a, mi a mix of everything. So we manufacture some things ourselves internally. We manufacture some things in the supply chain in Australia. And then we also import in components from overseas. So rocket engine nozzles, payload fairings is something we buy from overseas at the moment. And so we bring them in and then integrate them to our vehicle. But the major bits of the vehicle we we manufacture ourselves. So the you know the tank final assembly we do all that. The vehicle airframe structure we do that, and then all the other bits and pieces you start to literally bolt together. Very much like how you make a car, right, or a bus, <laughs> or a bus, just yeah. a slightly different uh, trajectory. Um, now this this technology, as you as you said, it's uh, quite complex. Uh, it, it relies a lot on, on the people and, and the expertise of, of them. And we saw, I think a couple of months ago, your, your company's name popped up in an article about spying activities where apparently there was some spying activity from, from the Chinese government into your company. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think we just saw our name in, in the papers. Um, my name was in the paper as well. We like we have pretty good firewalls and 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 hacker protection in the company, so we are aware of attacks into the company that get blocked, and generally the frequency of attacks goes up dramatically after we do a press release, especially about a piece of technology that we've tested. So if we do a press release on a big engine test, the attacks from internet come up a lot. We get a lot of phishing attacks as well. I don't think the Chinese have any real good information on the company or on us. I think a lot of it they've just gleaned off the web. You know, if you look at the, there's been some videos done of the SpaceX Star, whatever factory yeah. in um, in Texas. That's really high levels of detail that Elon Musk allowed that company to go into his factory and see stuff. That is beyond, well beyond anything that I think the Chinese have on us. So I'm not super worried about it. Yeah, you, you did have an instance in your Singapore factory where you had a pink news crew come in that might not have been a news crew. Yeah, yeah, we don't. We think they were. They pretended to be from um, a Chinese uh, TV station, and you know we never saw we never saw the um, the the show. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that could have been. But again, you know, that was early days in our company. I, I don't think uh, they would have got a lot of good stuff out of that. And we've changed the design about three times since then anyway. Yeah, right. So at the moment, there's a lot of um, interest in getting people to Mars, setting up a base on the moon. What, what is sort of your views on where the space industry might might go? Do you think it's a realistic plan that we that we put people on, on Mars? 
I don't think it's realistic in the short term. I think it's inevitable in the, in the long term that, you know, humanity will expand throughout the solar system. I think totally feasible. We've got the technology already. It's just, a, you know, money and time. The problem I have with Mars is it's a long way away. It takes six months to get there. You've got to match the orbit. So, the, you know, by the time you come back, it's another two years. You know, light travels. It takes anywhere between 18 and 42 minutes to get a round trip voice, you know, radio communication. Um, so, you know, I think it's a heck of a lot easier to, to um, colonise the moon and, and set up bases on the moon first. Uh, it takes three days to get to the moon. The, the, the signal back and forth is a few seconds. Um, you know, it's just a lot easier. So, you know, I, I remember one of uh, the board members of SpaceX is a guy, um, Steve Jervinson. I was on a panel with him. And, you know, he's on SpaceX board, so he's talking about Mars. And I said, look, there'll be a million people living on the moon before 10,000 people live on Mars. That's my estimate. Right. And when do you think that will happen? I, I don't know. I think I'd be very happy to see a permanent moon base um, before the end of the decade. I think it will happen. I think there'll be an American one, the Chinese one, um, you know, you probably have to look at Antarctica. Like I would say, how I would estimate how many people be on the moon is I'd say how many people are working in Antarctica. And if that's a thousand or 2000 people, I'd say for the rest of this century, that's probably how many people are going to live and work on the moon and maybe times it by two. Yeah. The, 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 the critical piece is, you know, how does it become profitable? How does it become uh, economically driven that you can live and work on, on the moon? And no one's come up with a really good idea about how that will work in the in the short term. Yeah, because that was my my next question. What, what's the uh, benefit of having uh, a basis or a, a permanent uh, um, station on on the moon? The, the main the main benefit is just uh, it, the gravity is so much less than the Earth, and if you're going to send anything off the moon to explore the rest of the solar system, that's a really good uh, place to do it. I read a lot of hard science fiction books. And in most of the books, these writers' consensus is that the moon is humanity's base for exploration uh, outside of the moon because of the gravity. So, so it's easier to, to um, get lift off with a rocket? Yeah, you can basically lift probably about 20 times more payload for the same rocket off the surface of the moon compared to Earth because the gravity is one-sixth. Yeah, yeah. So for those that are interested in that, what are good science fiction books? Because a lot of it seems to be not very scientifically based. What are you reading? Um, well, you can put me on the spot here. Um, there's a really good book, um, Ender's Game. The guy that wrote Ender's Game, Orson Scott, yeah. The Ender's Game is set about 100 to 200 years into the future. And the series of books basically talks about you know, humanity's first colonization into the solar system. And so, you know, there's a big base on the moon. That's that's become an industrial, the massive industrial center. So industry moves off Earth and goes onto the moon for pollution reasons and all the other stuff. And then, you know, mining is done all the, all the way out into the Oort cloud. And it, it's, it's a good book because it, it doesn't sugarcoat the complexities of living and working in space. It basically, you know, Everybody in space is as an engineer, and they consist constantly fixing the you know the the spaceships that they're in, and you know 
stealing parts and you know doing that i think that's the reality of space for a long long time it's not going to be gleaming starships <laughs> that work autonomously and all that kind of stuff more trying to get a steampunk vehicle <laughs> something like that yeah so what is next for you you talked a little bit about that you want to go to a bigger rocket bigger payloads uh, where do you see yourself in the company in the next five years yeah we're going to go into bigger payloads look we Our greatest challenge is getting to space in the first place, and that's that's in the next 12 months. So we've got you know a big big challenge ahead of us to, to successfully get to space. We'll probably have a couple of attempts to do it before we do it successfully, and that's pretty normal for rockets. Yeah. Um, and then once we've done that, we want to quickly move into bigger vehicles. And so we want the next biggest vehicle in 2023, and the bigger vehicle after that in 2025. Um, so that's that's the next five years for us. Yeah. And so with the bigger vehicles, is that just that you can get more? Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, so when we talk to customers about, you know, replacing their constellations, you know, we said to them, you know, our first rocket will be able to take one of your satellites up and we'll charge $7 million. And then they said, what, what, what about the next one? We said, well, the next one will be able to take four up and we're going to charge $9 million. And they said, well, I'd much rather deal nine million dollars for four than seven for one right you know on, on economics of scale so we think the sweet spot for small launch vehicles is around 800 to 1200 kilograms of payload and and so that's what we think is is going to be the mainstay vehicle for us for a while yeah yeah well adam thank you very much for this conversation it was very interesting and uh all the best with kilmer space thanks a lot pleasure to talk Woda. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.